0: Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast, I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode, I spoke with Tom Jessen. Tom is a mosquito physiotherapist from Northumberland in the northeast of England who has recently moved to Michigan in the US and he's developed an interest in sciatica after a popular Twitter thread and continues his deep immersion into the sciatica literature. So I first became aware of Tom from his excellent episodes both as a host and a guest on the Physio Matters podcast where he has talked about his deep dive into the sciatica literature and also a truly exceptional episode with John Lorna on narrative medicine, and recently an insightful and engaging episode with Tina Price on her experience of sciatica. Having listened to Tom's thoughtful and articulate analysis and discussion on these topics, I really wanted to get him on the podcast to talk about these issues further. So in this episode we talk about the different diagnostic labels associated with sciatic pain, and the implications of using these terms with patients. We discuss the issue of accuracy and precision, both from a medical and terminological perspective, and also the challenge of naming and labelling complex subjective phenomena relating to a pain experience. We also go into sacrificing precise terms for terms which are more meaningful and functional for the person experiencing sciatica. So Tom was a brilliant guest and I really enjoyed the conversation. It's clear he's really taken the time to think deeply and critically about these important and often extremely challenging areas of clinical practice. So I bring you Tom Jessen. Tom, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The, the reason why I wanted to talk with you is, is because, well really because your podcasting history and your social media <laughs> uh, contribution or at least in Twitter and all the brilliant stuff that you're adding to the sciatica body of knowledge and, and at least in terms of uh, disseminating interesting reliable uh, research knowledge around that but uh, as, as we spoke before it's just your clarity of, of presentation of information and you seem quite a thoughtful person
1: yeah that's what I'm going for yeah yeah <laughs>
0: You seem to think about things before you say it and it's considered Mm -hmm. and it it certainly landed with me when I heard your podcasts on the Physiomatter podcast. So maybe we can just start by you just outlining a bit about yourself, your clinical background, uh, what brought you into the, or at least drew your interest into sciatica.
1: Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Like, It's always nice to sit down and talk about this stuff. It is a a real passion of mine. Uh, So I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation um particularly this angle of kind of the, the words and the, the way we kind of talk about this thing is really interesting to me i am a physiotherapist and i have let's see i came to physiotherapy uh trained in my mid-20s so i'd already worked a few jobs here and there uh, but didn't really have a particular career it wasn't a career switch uh, it was my first career i trained in the northeast of england at northumbria university Uh, And immediately after graduating, I went to work in a musculoskeletal outpatients clinic. Uh, So I have uh, a couple of years of experience there uh, and then some um, time in a specialist pain service as well. And it was in my training for that job that I was asked to kind of do a bit of research and report back to the other trainees about radiculopathy. And I had no idea what it was at the time Uh, I think I'd heard it said once or twice, and it stuck in my head because it's quite a cool-sounding word. And I went away and did a bit of research, and just as a matter of habit, like, I always like to put what I read through Twitter because I find that it forces me to articulate it properly. Uh, And if you're lucky, someone else will kind of jump on and tell you, like, a little bit more information. So I put it on Twitter, and I was really surprised to find that a lot of people were interested in that thread. And which kind of, again, it surprised me because I thought what I was reading was quite sort of beginner level, but it turned out a lot of other people were having trouble with this concept, radiculopathy, sciatica, referred pain, all that stuff. And the sort of rolled from there. So I was asked to do a talk at a conference. I was asked to write an article for a magazine, as I say, another podcast. I've done a little bit of um, actual research as well now. So that that sort of developed from there. Um, a bit of a snowball effect, really. And now I'm, I'm in this position where I seem to be like an accidental sciatica guy. <laughs> people like you asked me to go on a podcast about it.
0: But, you know, you've got a, a real grasp of the literature and a real way of presenting that literature that that work.
1: Yeah. Just on the, on the point of presenting the, the literature. Yeah. I don't know. People have told me that before. This isn't false modesty. I like to think it's because it's quite difficult for me to understand a lot of it, you know? Mm. They do say that, you know, sometimes the best teachers are people who don't find the material easy. But because I have to turn, maybe I find I have to turn stuff over in my head quite a lot and kind of write it out and rewrite it. And by the time it's done, it seems to be quite useful for other people mm. as well.
0: So you've been on this kind of, you've immersed yourself, if that's a fair... Yeah, uh, kind of yeah. In, in the sciatica or, or radiculopathy literature. What surprised you most?
1: Oh, interesting question. I think there's a few things that surprised me. Just just to pick, I suppose it depends what perspective you come from, right? So if, if I went back and I was the complete novice that I was with a couple of weeks of clinical experience under my belt, it would be different things that continue to surprise me now. As I keep reading now, one of the things that surprises me is that no one, in particular, seems to own the ridiculous pain sciatica literature, and the, the it, it seems to be almost like the the forgotten stepchild sometimes of low back pain. Uh, so the often a low back pain paper will pretend it's also about sciatica, mm-hmm. or a, a huge research. Um, sort of well-funded research institution will investigate low back pain, but not sciatica. Hmm. And I think that's why it almost over the decade seems to come up and people become really interested in it in some corner of the world, and then it dies down again. Um, But like the neuropathic pain people aren't really into it. The back pain people sometimes are, but aren't really. So it's kind of ends up being a bit of a patchwork of, you know, patching together different things.
0: Yeah. You're right. No no one has kind of really grabbed it and, and mm-hmm. taken hold of it and probably because no one wants to own it. Like who the hell wants yeah. to own sciatica? And you're right, it's often clumped together, isn't it? If you look at the nice guidelines, it's kind of it's back pain, at least in the UK, you know, the clinical guidelines are back pain and sciatica. Mm-hmm. And there's you know, there's there's some distinction made in the interventions recommended or, or not recommended. But in terms of the kind of discourse around it, those preliminary kind of sections, really it's just kind of lumped together.
1: And and I think that's where it's beneficial for. It's almost like it's gone to sleep in many ways. So, so some of the the most the, the clearest and most cogent stuff about sciatica is two, three, four decades old. Um, and and I mentioned before, that my thread and the, on Twitter and the, the the article I did in the magazine. None of that stuff is new, um, and that that's. I'm not just saying that as a to like false modesty or just as a it's none of it's remotely new uh, and i was just reading uh last night louis giffords has uh, it's, uh, maybe you can put a link up in the sort of show notes yeah cool he he's written about he would call it nerve root syndromes i think and stuff that I thought for a time was really cutting edge research about kind of neuroinflammation and that stuff. He's writing about that sort of 20, more than 20 years ago. Mm. So it's almost like it kind of goes to sleep and then maybe someone like me will kind of turn it up again. And other people who, who have, because that's the thing of when you when you give names to things, like when you, you kind of talk about radicular pain, radiculopathy, sciatica, it helps you to see stuff that was in front of your eyes all along, you know, mm. uh, and things become a bit more clear all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, and I think also the term when you name them or box and sciatica, it's so loaded, and often maybe despite the the, the knowledge changing, the evidence changing, which support or, or give shape to that term, it's 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 a kind of an archaic term, sciatica. It's kind of le- it's got this historical mm. baggage with it. Mm-hmm. That you know, my dad had it or it's like Lumbago something, yeah. like that, you know. It's kind of everyone thinks they know what it is. Yeah. But can we just iron out the terminology? Can we just mm-hmm. can you just set that record straight for us all?
1: No, and it's important. And and I think um what yeah, well so you mentioned sciatica first of all, which is yeah, everyone kind of has heard of sciatica as you say, although it's kind of vague and the the there's different vaguenesses so clinicians have their own vaguenesses about it and so does the general public um so with clinicians sciatica sometimes can mean uh, piriformis syndrome um which is a whole other category and then Mm. some clinicians don't like the word sciatica because it's not particularly anatomically um correct like a nerve root technically isn't really the sciatic nerve and Mm. an upper lumbar nerve root certainly isn't the sciatic nerve. So from a purely accuracy sort of point of view, that there's an argument against using that term sciatica because it almost invites vagueness of thinking, you know, I think there's certainly something to that. But You know, we have also have lots of other quite vague medical terms that we still kind of get along fine with, like stroke or heart Mm. attack. You could make a good argument that those are kind of weird terms to use for what they are. And, you know, well, I think there's more to, you know, we should probably judge these terms on whether they're functional rather than whether they're accurate. Basically, nothing's going to be perfectly accurate. Mm. But then, so, so this, anyway, there's that term sciatica, which, you know, as you say, everyone kind of knows it's been around for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. Originally, kind of the root of the word comes from the um, the word for hip, right, ischium. So that kind of refers vaguely to like um, a, a nerve pain down the back of the leg.
0: And is it just pain? So, is, is, so it's the term sciatica just imply pain? Or what comes with that term is also... Potential loss in motor function or sensory changes, et cetera. Um,
1: good question. to me, um, it implies pain. And again, I suppose that it depends on like the context in in which you're using it. but to me it sort of implies pain. Obviously, in a clinical situation if, if I was you know talking to another clinician and I said someone had sciatica, that implies that I would have tested their reflexes and so on. But the word itself seems to point towards pain to me. Yeah. I don't know if you feel differently about
0: it I think so yeah patients when patients use it they're mm. almost almost always complaining of pain that's their primary mm. complaint they're not saying I mean sometimes they are saying I have no pain but I also can't lift my foot up mm-hmm. yeah, they might say that but typically it's associated with that painful experience and the other stuff comes on later or or maybe not at all
1: mm. and just on the on the point of, You you alluded to it as well before, like how sciatica has almost this mythic quality in the culture. Like, uh, and I think we forget about that. Like our patients see kind of pick up what sciatica is, and I'm doing the little inverted comma signs in my, with my hand. But I was watching the the movie uh, Amelie, the French Miss French movie. It was my my wife's night to pick the movie, (laughs) and it was really good actually, and there's a character in there who has sciatica, um, but she's a sort of a comic character. She's a hypochondriac, and she's always worrying about her various ailments and diseases. And it seems to be that her sciatica there that she has is almost like shorthand for she's a little bit loopy and just complaining about stuff. So I think it has all these weird connotations that we don't think about to to patients as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I just it just takes me I remember mean, Ben Darlo's work on his interviews with patients with back pain, acute mm-hmm. and, and chronic, and and one of the things that came up was that back pain had this stigma to it and it was easy to harm, hard to heal, that was mm-hmm. the phrase. That was the name of the paper actually. And it's this kind of thing that, oh, you don't want to get sciatica. Yeah. I had, you know, my mate had side to go, my yeah. dad had side to go. And so you kind of learn vicariously through through friends and family that have had it. And it becomes this, like you said, this kind of mythical event mm, that you mm-hmm. just want to spend your life trying to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you are afflicted with deciding yeah. if it, if it's you know strikes you down.
1: And I think maybe that's kind of we'll probably get on later about communicating with patients. But there's probably some value there to having a Extra value to having a clear communication because there's. there's I wonder if there's like a false knowledge, out there of sciatica. So if you say to patients, "Oh, I have you, you have sciatica," well, they'll say, "Is this sciatica, doc?" And, mm-hmm. and you say, "Yes." They probably already have this like freight of meanings of what that actually is. Whereas you know, for example, a tendinopathy, I don't think carries quite the same cultural meaning. It's more like a blank mm-hmm. slate. You explain to someone what a tendinopathy is. Oh, okay, fine.
0: Yeah. I think what's tied to the sciatica word and diagnosis is the back and big bits of disc material slipping and you know, pushing on. So I think there's that extra layer of scariness for patients that it's mm. not just the, you're not just giving a name to the pain that they're experiencing down the leg, but also you're alluding to the cause, these causation beliefs that actually, yeah, it's called, this pain is called sciatica but what implied in that word is there's a, a you know your back is damaged and it's you know, squishing on that that hose pipe so
1: as i say that's sciatica you, you talked me up by saying i was good at giving clear and concise
0: explanations
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, So sciatica is that and then we have these other kind of terms floating around i, did,
0: I didn't i didn't say concise i never said concise okay. thank you
1: <laughs> you don't want to oversell me that's for sure <laughs> and uh, so we have these other terms radiculopathy and radicular pain, which obviously sound quite similar to each other. Um, And they're obviously a lot more medical or specialist. And they refer rather than sciatica, which kind of gestures to the hip or the leg, or the sciatic nerve, they refer more specifically to the nerve root. So the word radiculopathy comes from uh, the Latin for uh, root radix, which is you know where we get words like radish and stuff, so root vegetables. Um so it refers a bit more specifically to the root. So um, proponents of the kind of accuracy school of naming things would are happier that it, it it at least describes roughly where the pain is coming from. Although again, that's another kettle of fish. Yeah. The term ridiculous ridiculopathy, as the kind of opathy suffix um indicates, refers to a kind of damage or lack of something. So we would want to use the word radiculopathy, specifically for when there is nerve root pain with a loss of function. Um, So if we're doing the kind of the exam that we're taught in school, so the reflexes and testing sensation, testing power, and sometimes you'll find as I say that patch of numbness or that kind of absent or weak reflex, which suggests that the that nerve is not conducting impulses up or down as well as it should be. Um, so we would uh, use the term radiculopathy uh, to refer to that loss of function. The radicular pain is uh, doesn't kind of allude to any sort of loss of function. It just refers to the that kind of gain of function, essentially, which is pain. So radicular pain, um, pain coming from the nerve root. And one of the, the other ways to kind of help that click is to say that, of course, a radiculopathy can be pain-free, right? Uh, it really only refers to the loss of function. It doesn't have much to say about pain, that phrase. So I'm fairly sure that my, I don't know if this is a good example, but I had sciatica a few years ago and I'm fairly sure that I'm still quite weak in that side. I get absolutely no pain or no symptoms. And so arguably that's a radiculopathy. And then, of course, we see patients whose pain responds before their their weakness. We see patients with foot drop without any pain from a, uh, a nerve root. So all those things would be radiculopathy.
0: And the so the significance of that is one is that or the, the the reason to get the terminology right is is about accuracy, and we hope that what we say reflects the reality of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So the problem with sciatica is that it doesn't reflect necessarily the reality of what's going on to to cause that that experience and and sorry to borrow what you said in previous podcasts and say here yeah, but you had a really when you and Jack were talking a really nice way i can't remember how it, how it went but something like even though ridiculopathy or ridiculous pain are the more precise and probably the more medically accurate an appropriate terminology p- between clinicians. Mm. Sitting down with the patient, now I'm paraphrasing you and we'll get mm. it wrong. But sitting down with the patient and saying, they say, Doc, have I got sciatica? And you say, no, well no, actually it's mm. ridiculous you have or it's a, it's a <laughs> ridiculous pain.
1: Well, let me stop you right there. Actually we call it yeah.
0: <laughs> It's create it creates a kind of an awkwardness. It kind of compromises that therapeutic relationship and communication that's going on. So that's and that goes with anything pulling up patients around their their lack of precision into in um description of what's going on in their bodies there's something about it's going kind to of disempower so no no you don't you're wrong this is what's going on that's not very helpful but I think what was what what you did say which i thought was really interesting was that it, it, that word sciatica if it carries meaning for the patient they're often as, as we said it's, it's such a it's such a loaded term what comes with it is people's other experience of people having sciatica and it seems to capture this is what you're saying it seems to capture the the unpleasantness of sciatica and to take it away from a patient yeah. at the time when they're using it to convey yeah. that lived experience and say well actually they can't you know can't give that experience this name you've got to call it this yeah it's something a bit a bit shitty about that yeah. for whatever better word yeah. you know
1: yeah I, I think I'd, I'd agree with you there certainly as we said before you know there, there are lots of different meanings that come with sciatica and some might be uh, helpful for that patient and some might be unhelpful and that's something to unpack but I'm certainly a proponent of Trying to meet the patient at their meaning, or you know, uh, as John Lorna would say, you you know, you're weaving a tapestry with them. You're not kind Mm. of. um, So, so I would be happy to kind of keep using that phrase,
0: Um, or at some point introduce a you know different phrase or along that. Exactly what
1: I was going to mention. Yeah, you know, you might also also find that people call it uh, ridiculopathy, and you know, because they're going to start googling Mm. it. Um, and it might be part of might be like a step on the way of them understanding their condition more as well but I think it's that kind of you know you don't want to pander too much but I do feel like sometimes and maybe I'm just speaking for myself there is this urge to you know pose as the expert or kind of enjoy your own knowledge and I don't think it's as much um added value to that if someone has an acute or recent onset of sciatica. And the the other thing is, you know, I say sciatica all the time Mm because radiculopathy and radicular pain is such a mouthful. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's difficult to say. So, you know, in this conversation, I'll probably be saying sciatica and we both know what it means. It's a useful category for us to talk about. So I think, although I've kind of, I've been very pedantic at times, about the difference in meaning, it's not—it's not the end of the world, is it? As long as kind of you, you're you both kind of weaving this useful tapestry together in your discussion,
0: I think you're right. It, what are the consequences of using the term if it isn't harming patients and it's this somewhat benign inaccuracy mm-hmm. that can be said to exist or exist a bit like Father Christmas? If it's not doing harm, like mm-hmm. don't mention it. But it's interesting, isn't it? That that if it is the case that you know if it's agreed, there's some big consensus statement about the use of sciatica but it is still used i mean you would think that it's one thing individual clinicians making that judgment saying i'm just going to keep using i'm not going to bother kind of correcting patients but for someone like you know nice for example to Mm. say i mean the people sitting on that panel going through the summarized research papers really making decisions about interventions recommendations imaging etc and they get to the title what should we call this you would think some would say, well, "I wonder if we should call it something else." You know, given have the similar conversation that we just had, but they thought, "No, we'll go with sciatica," um, despite it being inaccurate. Um, and mm. it's, it's curious to wonder whether or not it ever will change, or it's just so embedded in our our kind of social, kind of medical community and identity that it will never change.
1: Mm. I mean, I would I would go with uh, to the fact that it's been around for hundreds of years, and Shakespeare was talking about it. Mm. Um, and if you if you look up radicular pain and radiculopathy, they've been around for a few decades, really, uh, to refer to to the, to the pain conditions. So I would bet on sciatica on that basis. <laughs> if we were going to say which one will still be around in a hundred years, I'd probably put my money on sciatica, for better or worse.
0: And so, so what kind of conversations, or, or so we said maybe just pulling patients up and just correcting them and making them feel stupid isn't. It's not a great mm-hmm. thing to do, but letting it slide, at least initially, and and you know compromising that inaccuracy in order to gain trust and you know develop that relationship. In in your reading, in relation to patients' experiences of sciatica, is there anything that strikes you as being different to p- patients' experiences and the kind of behavioural psychological aspects of sciatica compared to back pain? Are they are they the same? So do we still get fear avoidance or or pain related fear and because they're often not as far as i can aware they're not really separated out Mm.
1: i think certainly a few things that 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 come to mind um but as you say and i'm i'm hesitating because i might be wrong here but certainly the, the kind of um endless literature on fear avoidance and pain avoidance for for low back pain and that kind of thing I don't know of anything that looks specifically at sciatica and now I've said that I hope someone sends me something but I've not really seen that much
0: yeah we well, just to get on Twitter someone will correct us. yeah <laughs>
1: the, the, be- see, the best way to get like a, a good answer online or on Twitter is not to post a question but just to post the wrong answer <laughs> someone will definitely correct you so um yeah there there are no papers on sciatica looking at like fear avoidance for sciatica specifically so as you say, it kind of gets lost a little bit, but there are certainly some things that come out from the, the qualitative literature. One, as you say, is that people with sciatica often kind of allude to this sense that it's worse than they expected or worse than they anticipated. And obviously with the usual caveats, it's very individual and sometimes sciatica can be quite mild as my, my experience was very, a very mild sort of mechanosensitivity really just to throw another category in there. Mm -hmm. People who are interviewed who've had severe sciatica say things like, um, this was worse than I imagined pain could be, or um, if there was, uh, this is getting a bit dark on the podcast, sorry, but if there was a gun on the bedside table, I would have considered using it. Mm -hmm. Um, One writer, uh, a epidemiologist um, called, his name's Mayer, I forget his first name, Wrote of being like reduced to a, a screaming animal, essentially, like words kind of failed him, um, which is, a, you know, on the topic of, since we're on a words podcast, it's something that people say quite a lot under extreme pain is the, the idea of language kind of just failing them at that point, And then they can't really articulate what they're experiencing. So that seems to be a common theme that comes up in the qualitative literature is people with sciatica saying it's much worse than other pains that I've had. and And I think it's good to kind of bear that in mind because it can be, would it change your clinical decisions? Maybe in some ways, but just in terms of relating to the patient and being aware of what's going on, to have to have that kind of consideration in mind is quite important.
0: I think I read the same, I've just pulled it up on my phone, the quote from the Quoll paper by Saunders, I think, it was in Social Science and Medicine, it was a journal, but I've got it here and I read it, I, have, I had read this paper and I remember I forwarded it to you before the podcast, but the quote, if we're thinking about the same, Quote was, um, so this is, a, this is a, a quote from a participant with Sciatica in a qualitative study that I'll put the link up. It's called Biographical Suspension by Saunders, can't remember the first name. Quote was, I can't describe the pain, that sort of pain where you want to throw up. You know when you're a child and you banged yourself and knocked yourself sick. It was like that, but it didn't go off. There was no relief from it, and I've still got it now. With the pain I was in, some nights I was suicidal. If they put a gun at the side of my bed, I'd as soon as shot myself. I mean that's one example. You, you know, there's certainly a a pattern in the in the qual literature about just the severe unpleasantness of side, which seems to to elevate it over back pain in many instances.
1: From in my experience, like from other stuff that I see as well. So as I say, I, my experience has been as a kind of outpatient musculoskeletal physiotherapist for most of my career, and there, you know, people are suffering and have you know, many problems. But in terms of the actual um, sensory experience of pain, um, we don't tend to see the things like trigeminal neuralgia and cluster headaches, you know, we see knee arthritis and back pain, which, you know, are very serious in their own right and disabling conditions. But I think there is this kind of hinterland of, of pain that we don't see except for some patients with sciatica um, or other nerve conditions, obviously. Now there are many caveats to that statement, of course, and I'm sure some, you know, I I don't want to kind of make the podcast too boring by outlining them, but as a very general statement, I think people with um, nerve pain, serious nerve pain often have Um, more severe sensory experience of pain and often much more severe distress associated with that and if you're a normal kind of common or garden musculoskeletal physiotherapist like I am you don't see many of those people except for people with very severe sciatica Um, so it, it does occupy a slightly different category
0: for me in some ways but I think I mean, there's evidence, isn't there, that it is the levels of disability are much higher associated with sciatica compared to without sciatica. So it pans out or is shown in the literature.
1: I think there's a, l- a little bit of debate around that too, but as a, as a statement, I think that's fair, yeah.
0: So given that, and given, given the frank unpleasantness of sciatica, and given that much of the interventions around back pain are around reassurance, kind of reframing, enhancing confidence, um, promoting activity and exercise, those kind of things. Do those same strategies seem to work for sciatica, which is which in my experience, that it seems impenetrable often to some of those psychological interventions where just saying to someone, I know you're in just a huge amount of pain, but really there's no damage here. You know, and you're safe to do all that kind of jazz. My my experience is despite them recognizing it's 18, but it just bloody hurts.
1: Well, it's interesting to hear your experience on that because um, it's something I've kind of wondered. And and as I kind of said at the beginning of the podcast, I don't have many years of clinical experience to draw on. Um, So it's interesting to hear yours too. I think again it's a kind of thing um, it's slightly difficult to talk about without caveating everything. Um, and there's so many different ways you can look at you know pain, biopsychosocial, sensory, emotional, all that stuff. but I, I definitely have had that um, impression and one way another way of putting it might be that for, for people some people with sciatica, the pain is is very much a sensory discriminative experience or driven by that kind of input. Uh, and that the kind of evaluative, emotional, effective aspects of it follow on from the sort of peripheral input. And to put it in sort of more simple terms, yeah, I've had the same experience, which is that there's, there's no consoling some people, particularly with acute sciatica. It, it feels a lot less like, um, you know, again, some people with chronic back pain kind of that relapse remitting, weird sort of back pain, it almost feels like you're exploring a territory with them. How how does your pain do when you do this? You know, also it feels better when you do that. Mm. You know, have you considered that it might be caused by this? And you can kind of there's something that you're exploring or working with. Whereas with sciatica, sometimes it feels just like this kind of monolith that you can't really kind of
0: breach. Yeah. And there's no relief, and there's often there's often there's no there's little positional relief, or, or any kind of temporal relief.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to have any solutions to that, but I think it's really nice to mention it because, um, particularly for people early in their career, just to be aware of that. A so they don't beat themselves up, you know, when they they can't kind of make progress with the certain approaches um, and B, so they maybe don't kind of keep trying if it's not working I think um, I'm not my you know maybe it's a completely different topic to open but it might also mean being much happier to refer for things like medications um, injections and surgery Uh, which generally like the physio bias against those things I'm very like happy with and I think it's just a it's a it's a good thing and very supportive of it but I think um maybe you know I'm in America now so I think things would be different over this side of the pond but certainly in England a kind of physio bias against those interventions would maybe not be good for some people with sciatica but I think the other thing to say is that um one, when you were saying your your experience it certainly reminded me of a few particular experiences that i've had but i've had some of the opposite actually as well where when people have you say like chronic ridiculous pain and they often would would come in a very distressed state as well maybe they've had multiple interventions which have had like little or no sort of lasting benefit for them and i've actually had, some experiences where that a similar discussion to the one you were saying essentially you know education reassurance has been like profoundly beneficial for those people and some of the best sort of moments in my career really that I think back to because there is a, a sense for some people sciatica so doesn't intuitively make sense for the layman so even if you if you had a tendinopathy, you know, even if you never went to see anyone, you could probably work out, like there's a sort of intuitive sense in a tendinopathy, whereas sciatica is very weird. Uh, it comes along with different pins and needles and numbness. It gets worse at certain times of day for no reason. And after you do stuff hours afterwards for no reason. And there's a lot of misinformation just to further cloud the waters. So a lot of people with chronic sciatica Often, paradoxically, the more research they've done, they actually come in a state of being um, very ill-informed about their condition, and they haven't been able to make particular sense of it or fit in information to help them make sense of their life. So just to kind of put a lighter note on what you said before, in my experience with people with chronic sciatica, you can make huge strides with a 10, 20, 30-minute conversation Mm -hmm to help them clear up things that they've been really worried about or wondering about for a long time. So I'm I'm thinking of someone, for example, who he had sciatica for a long time, he'd stopped riding horses. Uh, He was uh, like, uh, when I was working in Lincolnshire, and he was kind of a farmer, and he used to ride horses a lot. And he, with his wife, and he just had no idea whether it was safe or not to do so. And so we had a discussion. I didn't say it was completely safe. We had a discussion about risks and benefits. And he was the kind of guy who was happy to accept risks for, for, you know. Um, So he left that conversation really, really happy. And like with a sort of spring in his step Mm -hmm. type of thing. And, And lots of people who have just been through, you know, endless kind of imaging and interventions without having someone talk them through Here's what's going on in your body. Here's why it really hurts when you sit like this. Here's why your foot hurts, even though they're they operated on your back. You know, here's why you get pins and needles at night. But I think you know there's certainly room for the, that sort of thing in physiotherapists as well.
0: I think yeah, you're completely right, and I wasn't suggesting that you would one would lose hope and say, well, I'm just not going to bother explaining anything. Yeah, I, mean, I would certainly you look to explore some of those. Uh, for one of a better word, kind of targets, if you like, whether it's fear about horse riding or, or not trying to or not being able to make sense of, of some of their symptoms, and it might well change their level of activity or disability, but not change their pain. But what you said there kind of resonated with I think your podcast again with Tina, in which she sent Tina it, for the listeners was. I mean, you can probably introduce Tina.
1: Uh, so Tina Price is a person uh, with sciatica and she's had it for a few years she's in Bournemouth in the United Kingdom uh, and she uh, is uh, she blogs at livingwellpain.net that's livingwellpain.net uh, and she's just very articulate about her experience with the medical system understanding her understanding of sciatica and I always plug her stuff so I'm glad you gave me an opportunity
0: yeah she um she but she described on your on the podcast with you that she needs to work with someone to help make sense. I think of her body and what was going on, and she subsequently I think worked with Matt Lowe, who's been on the podcast. And I just wonder what what you think about that and the role that clinicians have in making sense with patients, and what are some of the ways that we can make sense, or so what is you know what does it mean to make sense of sciatica with a patient, and what are the possible implications of that, and how it, how might we make sense
1: the first step is 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 to um help kind of work it out yourself right um and that sounds sounds a little ob- a little obvious but we talk a lot about education and also but there's kind of also an awareness that just giving someone education in the form of a lecture is not that helpful uh, and certainly taking things off the shelf metaphors and so on and picking up on phrases and interjecting and uh, with kind of other phrases is is not that helpful. So I think the more you know, the more that your knowledge permeates that discussion, um, and the more kind of agile you can be in picking up on the patient's worries or misconceptions and helping them with those from the moment they come in the door. And I say that from a, because I know quite a lot about sciatica now, but I know almost nothing about a lot of things that I should. So, for, you know, I'm hopeless at some things. So just from a very basic point of view, just to learn and kind of help, you know, explain. If you can explain things to yourself, you can mm-hmm. explain things to others. But I think a few of the points that I personally have found most helpful for people with sciatica, one is the neurological exam there's a lot of debate about why we do the neurological exam. And one of the obvious reasons is to check for progressive neurology, but in some senses we could do quite a cursory exam and know about that. And in, you know, even so, like if someone has progressive sensory loss, are you going to refer them for surgery? It doesn't really, I think a lot of those debates about how much of a neurological exam can be solved by almost framing it as beyond a certain point, treatment or education. So That would include, you know, obviously reflexes, checking myotomes, checking dermatomes. If you have time, also uh, pinprick. uh, So the kind of backside of a, like the reflex hammer often has one, or you can get some um, online. In my experience, very often, uh, someone who doesn't say they have sensory loss to light touch with a cotton bud, they will have sensory loss to a pinprick. And when you're doing the exam, of course, you're doing your neural tension tests. In my experience, kind of giving like an online commentary during that exam can be really, really beneficial and interesting for the patient because then you're not kind of giving them an information dump later on. So again, no scripts, but I I might say beforehand something like the pain you're describing um, sounds like an irritated nerve. Um, Does that kind of ring true to you? Yeah, I've been wondering about that. Uh, So sometimes, usually nerve irritations like that come from your spine but I want to test your leg because, um, you know, the nerve does a few jobs, Uh, tells you what you're feeling. So we want to check that you can still feel stuff. Uh, It moves your muscles. So we want to check that they move. Um, And as you're doing it, you can just say, you know, there's a patch of numbness here and kind of explain why that is. It looks like the nerve isn't doing its job properly. Oh, that's, you know, maybe they would noticed that or maybe they Mm -hmm. hadn't. And it kind of gives them a bit more information. And there's this nice sense of building a picture together almost as well. Mm
0: The concern that we have is that we use language which is nasibic, so introducing even so the you know the the, the advice is not to provide pathoanatomical explanations for patients' back pain, and so nerve just sounds like oh, it sounds like a dirty word. You're now introducing an idea to a patient which they might well have already had, but within a certain clinical context and some implications that Mm -hmm. it's a it's a tissue causing symptoms, essentially. And so, on the one hand, we've got to be very cautious about introducing pathoanatomy to, to our discussions. But on the other hand, one cannot deny that nerves exist, that the the objective reality is that nerves exist and the spine exists. And whether we like it and whether yeah. we are, whether we whether you and I are having this conversation, nerve roots are there and they lie in close proximity to to disc hormones and stuff. So it's it's this... You know, to say we should never use pathosomical language to explain patients' back pain or whatever it is, is not true because there are mm-hmm. times when, we ha- when, when it might well be clear that it might well be the case that the nerve is involved in this patient's experience. Moreover, if the nerve is a meaningful idea for them, if they're thinking, my nerves are involved here, it would be remiss not to, to to explore that through examination and then hopefully you say all right nerves look fine there's no you know so it's um we've got to be cautious how we use it but it's not a case we just we, we don't avoid using these terms completely
1: yeah it's 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 a difficult issue um i worry about it less than i used to i think that the this is one perspective on, on that issue, which is an almost like another podcast, isn't it? But, but I think one of the, the things that people find difficult is they come from an accuracy perspective. Um, and speaking from experience, they get very worried about how to describe things because they want to be as accurate as possible, which is a, obviously a good thing to want to be, right? I think, you know, so for, yeah, for example, someone has sciatica, uh, symptoms um, from a very extreme point of view. Uh, although in some circles it's not considered extreme, you could ditch any sort of um, anatomy and you know say that the pain uh, experience is situated in their brain. You know, as far as your brain's concerned, you don't you know you don't have a pain in the leg; the pain is in the brain, and so on. And and there's a lot. The reason that kind of is a popular opinion is because it's essentially from a certain philosophical stance true, right? You know, people have phantom limb pain, people are born with missing fingers, but they still have pain in that finger and so on. And for very good reasons, people want to be accurate and, and kind of when they give their descriptions and when clinicians talk about amongst themselves. My problem with that is I think the quest for accuracy is kind of quixotic. I don't think we're ever going to be accurate with pain terms. Because pain is a, a complex object. It's not like a table that you can break up into the, you know, the legs and whatever you call the top of the table, which I just realized I don't know. But um, pain is a very is utterly kind of impenetrably complex. And we break it at different mm-hmm. joints in order to help us understand the world for functional purposes for instrumental purposes so we can do stuff in the world so for example even with a more accurate term like radicular pain well is the dorsal root ganglion is that the nerve root because the radicular pain refers to the nerve root but the dorsal root ganglion seems to be it's kind of other Mm. thing so is there like a lack of accuracy in that word i don't know but it's obviously not really worth worrying about I think if we stop, or if if we kind of ease up on assessing the words and the language we used by how accurate they are, which as I say is is kind of, of course, accuracy is important, but it's, there's never going to be a perfectly accurate way to break up and categorize and name and label complex objects, you're always going to lose something here or something there, or there's going to be some stuff that doesn't quite fit.
0: Or, or it won't fit for, there, there won't be one universal term which just carries the same meaning for everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so we shouldn't look at words as these kind of essences which give us meaning. You know, we give the meaning to the word. You know, mm-hmm. we made up that word to help us do something in the world at some point. So I, I'm much more less in favor of judging these explanations by accuracy and more, what you might call, like an instrumental how useful is this term for us yeah. for our purposes in this context?
0: And, and I suppose you, you talked about a, a kind of running commentary or an online commentary of mm. your clinical findings from your examination. And that begins to to build together that meaning, doesn't it? So, so they may well, well, they would be encouraged to contribute and chip in with their experiences, their meaning, whilst you're doing a straight leg raise or whatever it might be. And then together you create this shared meaning,
1: Use, using their their words, preferably, you know, yeah. Um, so it's again yeah. back to kind of the, the weaving of the tapestry type of thing. So I think what was your your original question was about that, wasn't it? So it was sort of helping the patient to make make sense of what's going on in their body, and so I think a, a really good place to start, as I say, is with the the nerve exam. And just kind of, yeah, helping them to understand what you understand and, and vice versa. So that even before you get to the quote unquote treatment or education, they're kind of getting what's going on and their their own particular things that yeah. they were worried about or confused about uh, can come into play.
0: An example of both addressing some of the I suppose the, the the fears or the misconceptions about some of their experience, that's not to say their experience isn't real, but they they might be ascribing certain causes to their experience. For example, if a patient is prone on a couch and you start kind of prodding and palpating around their back and pushing, putting kind of load through tissues, they'll sometimes say, are you, I mean, they'll ask, are you pushing on a nerve? Are you... Are you, are you, is that, the, is that the nerve? And it might be just reproducing some kind of somatic referral. And I think those that's a really good opportunity to, to have a discussion around that, saying actually, well, we're, you know, we're way away from the nerve. Yeah. <laughs> and you might even bring out a plastic model if you've got one. In touch. And so, but it begins to create an explanation with them. Um, which is not so nerve-focused, perhaps. They might still have kind of sciatica and radiculopathy, but in that moment, you're kind of demonstrating that, you know, that pain that you're experiencing, it really isn't down to me kind of squishing the nerve. And and this is maybe what's going on. So it, it builds a, a, a different conception of, a, a different understanding about, about what's going on in their bodies.
1: Yeah. And I think what you're describing, I don't know if there's a, like a word for it because we it's it's such a, a a useless dichotomy but this kind of hands on hands off thing i'm like i've been as i say graduated trained and worked in the kind of hands off phase so i'm like i'm crap at manual therapy like i'm just not like the, the, that thing that you're describing is you know it's some manual therapy proponents would call that manual therapy right but i, don't, I can't think of really another word for it like um but Something to do with you putting your hands on someone, and creating that kind of shared understanding of yeah what what happens when I do this, what happens when I do that.
0: And you can create, is it you're you're creating an experience, or you're creating an experience, which you then discuss together, and you share perspectives of that experience, which one hopes begins to cement or loosely cement a new conceptualization of what's going on and and you can you can do you might be that just with having a conversation with someone in many cases it's not necessary to touch anyone's back i'm sure but i think that, as you, that the notion that putting hands on someone and creating an experience from which to have a discussion about to say well that's just that's harmful it's it's not necessary it really does remove a whole a whole range of tools which one can create experiences. I and mean, really, we're in the business of creating experiences through either conversation, through exercise, or through movement, whatever it is. And it's just another way to create an experience from which a conversation can develop.
1: And we're the only set of clinicians at this little corner of musculoskeletal practice that can do that, right? You know, which we're very lucky, I think, to be able to do. Yeah.
0: And so what about when patients do have... Seemingly unhelpful conceptions about their ridiculopathy.
1: Well, I mean, there's, there's like lots of like, sort of common misconceptions, and probably the most common one is that it's all to do with compression, right? It's it's hard. All these things are so hard because you, when you're, they're not straightforward, and you want to like add a ton of exceptions and disclaimers to everything because, but. I, th- I certainly think that this idea of compression is with good reason foremost in patients' minds when they and clinicians' minds. And interestingly, from Rob mm. Goldsmith's uh recent paper, which is I just recently reread it, is that is so insightful, it's so interesting. Yeah, just qualitative research and patients have lots of different ideas about what might be causing the compression. Like sometimes the disc is swollen somehow, like a swollen ankle becomes in um, like twist his ankle, becomes swollen, but this this enduring idea that the nerve is being compressed, as you said, that is accurate in many ways, and in many ways it's not accurate and misses out a big part of the story. Accuracy is, as I said before, only part of the story. What we really want is them to have a, a useful or functional understanding of their their pain, because accuracy is a bit of a never-ending quest. The problem with the compression narrative, uh, there's a few. One is that it implies that surgery is the only fix. Uh, so that's something that came out of Rob's paper. Um, why would I do exercises? You know, why would I even take medications or have an injection when the nerve is compressed? And that, you know, that makes sense. So just in order to kind of broaden patients horizons, uh, you know, beyond this, things are being compressed narrative we need to add something else Uh, another problem with the the compression narrative is that it's it can set people up for a fall later on so this is something I noticed when I worked in the uh, uh specialist pain service is there are many many people uh who develop sciatica they get an MRI maybe well maybe they get an MRI at the time that shows compression the pain never goes away and um, a few years later, someone gives them another MRI, but there's no compression, no nerve root contact. And that completely stumps people, because for years they built up this idea of when I bend forward, this disc presses on my nerve. And it's almost like they're all at sea, like understandably so. And similar sort of case, like if someone thinks compression is a problem, they go for surgery, but the surgery doesn't actually work, which is reasonably common or only partially works, all of a sudden, again, they're all at sea, like they don't really have anything to work on. So the compression is gone, but my pain is not gone. So I, and I'll add the caveats to this later. And I'd be interesting to hear what you think of this as well. Like think of it in terms of like, a, or give the explanation in terms of a two-stage explanation. So I would allude to the compression. And again, this would be tailored to the patient's age, whether they've had imaging, mechanism of injury. I might say something along the lines of usually nerves become irritated um, because they're compressed or crowded out. You know, they're made of tough stuff, but they like their own space uh, and and if stuff presses on them, sometimes they can become irritated. Uh, Sometimes they build over time and they become more irritable over time. So if someone's particularly young, I might say, for you, uh, it seems probably more likely that it was a problem with your disc if someone's older it might be more likely to talk in terms of maybe say osteoarthritis, cause that's the word that they're used to and so on. But I'm happy to allude to the compression and obviously if they've had an MRI at some point, which has shown some sort of compression that makes things a lot easier so we can talk about the MRI. So the MRI shows that your nerve mm-hmm. is being compressed. So that's sort of phase one of what I kind of take it to call like the two-stage solution, two uh, two-stage explanation. The phase two would be when nerves are compressed, they also become irritated, or pissed off, or inflamed, um, a bit like and uh, un- say inflamed. What does inflamed mean? Swollen, sore, that type of thing. Uh, so not only is your kind of is your nerve. Com- possibly compressed or crowded out by something it's reacted to that by becoming irritated and pissed off and sore and especially you know for example in the acute phase that immediately introduces that possibility um, that this isn't just a one problem problem (laughs) it's a two problem problem you know so down it opens up a reason to do other things like exercise or sleep well, or look at your stress levels. And it also sets up an explanation for down the line. Well, what if they have surgery and it doesn't work? Uh, what if they get an MRI and there's nothing going on with the nerve? Hmm. I think the another good thing about that kind of two-step explanation is you're only adding a little bit to the patient's understanding. You know, you're not getting out a diagram of, central sensitization just yet it can be really alienating people are in pain that's a cognitive burden in itself you know most people are happy to kind of think okay so it's not just pressed it's also pissed off and irritated and inflamed so I've had like some success maybe just works for me with that explanation It's sort of quite a few penny drop moments for people with both, both acute and chronic sciatica the obvious caveats Um, Are compression isn't always you know there are many uh, plausible mechanisms by which a nerve root could hurt without compression so um, leakage of sort of nuclear tissue through annular fissures for example compression is you know one aspect really if we were being more accurate it would be mechanical deformation so a nerve can be twisted or have tension put on it by Mm -hmm. some sort of so there's a lot of caveats to that if you're going by the if you if you want to be completely accurate. But I think there's a core of something there is to give that two-stage solution, compression or something crowding the nerve out. And the second stage being this irritation, inflammation. And that opens a lot of doors in my experience. But I, I wonder what you think of that.
0: I think the challenge isn't it is not providing information which meets their you know the patient's desire for an understanding you know, there's an expectation that we're going to be able to point to some collection of structures mm. and some mechanisms to explain what's going on. However, we also don't want to create unnecessary cognitive burden, distress anxiety It's about providing information which is truthful, mapped to I suppose the biological reality but not too detailed that it's either untrue we can't give that level of detail truthfully and conjures up emotions and fears and I think you've gave some really good useful examples which I'm just going to borrow from my clinical practice I think a challenge that I've had is that often in clinical practice you're trying to underplay the specificity of their back Mm -hmm. pain I know this is a Size of a podcast but you're like right i just i just don't want to be specific mm. i don't want the patient having images in their brain about you know their back and their nerve i don't want them to close their eyes and to even see their nerve in a way you kind of want to blind them to some of that anatomical specificity because the sense is that if they've got overly structural views of, of this experience mm. then it changes their behavior and beliefs and all that kind of stuff So, as I said before, it's a bit of a a, a kind of tiptoey dance, tightrope. I've got all my metaphors mixed up there. But what is challenging is that, is when patients, so despite that, despite one trying to underplay the specificity of their, of the kind of biological phenomena, they go and have surgery, they remove the offending material, and their leg pain is completely gone. Where you try to say, that you know there are loads of other factors which are responsible for your pain experience. There's the stuff going in your back. There's sleep, stress, all the other things. And then pretty much they go for a purely biological intervention, which just does <laughs> wonders for them. And you then look like a bit of an idiot. You know, oh, bollocks, this whole bias. I gave them the, You know, I was really trying to re- You know, get them to to think in their of their problem in a in biased successful terms, like I was, so they can begin to you know address the different factors. And they pretty much they just went straight for the the reductionist intervention and it completely worked the challenge is then it then confirms a particular belief mm. that you can mm. have there are simple straightforward interventions to remove a horrible ex- or, or to take over horrible experience and then the future episodes so firstly they think hang on you were making out like this back pain thing is really complex it wasn't really i just you know through bupa i just had an injection and it's gone it's not complex at all you're an idiot and I suppose the concern is also that for future episodes, which may not you know, be so receptive to simple interventions, it hasn't done them any longer term favours mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of being able to self-manage future episodes.
1: Yeah. So, so almost thinking like, well, in the future, so after a successful kind of biomedical intervention in the future, that's kind of going to reinforce the idea that that's the fix. Yeah, that's a hard yeah. problem
0: yeah and it's a bit like if someone says i've got back pain it's because my pelvis is out i've gone to a a clinician they put my pelvis back in my pain's now gone that's the story that they're in that's the reality they're in
1: again it it, it's it's obviously a difficult situation to deal with again I, I, i don't pretend to have like an easy answer to it but i don't think um First of all, in the situation where a patient gets uh, the operation, and they feel better, and they don't have any sort of relapse and pretty much get on fine in the future. That's obviously not really a problem. I mean, we might feel a bit silly. <laughs> but for for them, that's great. But obviously, there's a, another problem is, well, what if it does come back? I don't really know, I can't recall what the rates of recurrence are, but they're I think they're um, definitely significant. I think I, maybe to go back to my previous answer of as easy as early on as possible, just introducing this idea of irritation and sensitization and that once it, something's been irritated, it, it's more prone to become irritable in the future. Um, and I know that explain pain guys have the the twin peaks model, don't they? Where that kind of, that kind of threshold for something becoming irritable, uh, can, Drop after injury mm. or and surgery, I suppose its own kind of injury.
0: I mean, yeah. Th- thank God for the word st- sensitivity or irritability. We left with, we'd be left with trapped or pinched or compressed. And I think and you know sometimes just suggesting those terms. And I know we talked about not pulling patients up in terms of accuracy. But I think if there ever was a time to. Mm -hmm. just slip in some alternative descriptors that might be it because even with objective compression on on a scan you, you you'd still kind of want to you need a you need a phrase which explains the experience but not one as i said which conjures up overly structural fears around fragility and if i just move the wrong way that that you know offending bit of stuff will push or poke in other directions and so it's about introducing a different explanation for the same event essentially for the same for the same thing mm.
1: it's a tough one <laughs> it, it's such an interesting subject for clinicians because uh, it's kind of the the whole the last sort of hold out of or certainly compared to low back pain anyway which i know if i decide to get into low back pain i, I find it so frustrating because every different perspective is equally valid, yeah. and so on. But with radicular pain, there does seem to be this um, last holdout of biomedicalism, if you want to call it that, or structuralism, where it's very legitimate, to, in my opinion, to explain it with.
0: If it is the case that there are the biological factors are more strongly associated or driving ridiculopathy than say non low back pain then you'd expect the biological interventions to be more successful they would just target and is that the case Mm
1: -hmm. um yeah i mean so one way of putting it the nice guidelines uh recommend injections and operations for radicular pain but not for axial low back pain so if nice is happy to Mm -hmm. i think um, the the, when you actually get into the weeds of the evidence, like there was a recent Cochrane review that said that the injections were gave only a very small short term benefit. Um, the, when you actually get into the weeds, there's like a lot of ways to argue against that. But it's still a, a kind of accepted sort of fact by big institutions like Cochrane that biomedical interventions are um, approved yeah. for
0: pain tom thanks so much for coming on the podcast
1: thanks for inviting me it was a pleasure thanks
0: and maybe just let the listeners know where they can find you and feel free to plug anything you want people to know about
1: as i said earlier tina's website livingwellpain.net i always like to tell people about that as a good place to go and on twitter i'm at thomas underscore jesson Um, And there's a couple of links like on my Twitter page to, I've got a newsletter where I'm trying to consistently send people a newsletter of interesting stuff about sciatica. And uh, there's a website where people can read some stuff that I've written in the past, uh, which is tomjessen.com. So those are the places to go.
0: Cool. And I'll link those in the show notes so people can just click and follow. Tom, thanks so much for talking.
1: Thank you, Ollie. I really enjoyed it.
0: you enjoyed this podcast visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and i'll see you next time